time has come is we've got to go the extra step. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. I'll compromise. We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers. Geez, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to balance the power here. And I'm Claire Salmi. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 1050 Bascom. On this episode of 1050 Bascom, we're happy to welcome back Niels Ringa, Professor of Political Science and the Director of the EU Center for Comparative Populism, to talk about his new book called The Language of Politics, Multilingual Policymaking in the European Union. The book, published in early 2022, investigates the impact of politicians' reliance on shared foreign languages and translation services on EU politics, and argues that it depoliticizes policymaking by reducing political connotations and potential for conflict. We'll ask Professor Ringa about the research that informs this book, as well as the geopolitical space that the EU occupies in contemporary global politics more generally, and in the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Let's jump right in. Thank you for being here. Sure. We've been on a bit of a populism politics kick, and you know, I'm, we're excited to have you on the podcast. Great. We're here to talk about your new book. Your mm -hmm. new book investigates the impact of politicians' reliance on shared foreign languages and translation services on EU politics and argues that it depoliticizes policymaking by reducing its political nature and potential for conflict. Whole lot of stuff, but let's maybe start with some background on how this project came about. Want to give us want to give us the dirt, the details? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, one thing is this multilingual aspect of EU politics is something that I've been observing even when I haven't done research on it, right? So I've, I've been going into the institutions uh, of the EU in Brussels for about 20 years now, and one of the really notable things about it is that, you know, people talk a little funny in a way, right? And, and I don't mean talk a little funny in the sense that they have, you know, accents in English or something like that, but there is something about the way that people communicate that seems particular to the place. And I've always kind of been intrigued by that. And, and you know, the question of, of, you know, language and communication does actually also kind of follow naturally from my previous work that I've done, um, you know, where I've been interested in things like you know, kind of the micro foundations of decision making, how do individuals actually arrive at the political decisions that they make. And then I'm, I've also been interested in uh, information networks um, in policy making. And so focusing more on political communication and really also narrowing in on, on or zooming in on, on language as such uh, kind of follows fairly naturally from that. And then there's a kind of personal interest as well in, you know, that I am bilingual. So, you know, I, my mother tongue is German, but um, my professional mother tongue is English and most of my life is in English at this point. And then I'm raising, I'm raising a bilingual child. And so, you know, there's also this element to it as well. And so starting in, you know, 2014, 2015, I started actually looking into this a little bit more. And I really didn't know where it was going to go uh, because there isn't really much at all uh, political science research on the topic. And so I started out really not knowing whether or not it was going to be, you know, one article and maybe that's it, or if it was going to be more than that. I've I was hoping for a book, but I didn't know if it, you know if there was enough there there. And boy, was there! So what was there is that you know I, actually what's interesting that's been fun about this book is that I actually did not start out with you know a great set of you know previous knowledge, uh, lots of information, lots of preconceptions about what I was going to find or expectations really what I was going to find. So I, I really wanted this from the get-go and also was forced to because, there, as I said, there wasn't really any research in political science on this with the exception of, you know, a handful of things. Um, so I didn't really know what I was going to find. And so for me, the 
the fun part about the project was in part to to really explore something kind of from the ground up, um, and and that is also kind of how I approached this. To back up a little bit, uh, maybe it would be beneficial for at least our audience mm-hmm. to talk a bit about the EU and what sets it apart from other international organizations in terms of you know the greater number of languages spoken and translated and how. Well, as you argue, the quintessential example of deep international cooperation and integration, how that all works. Sure, I'm certainly not the only one who would call it that. That's kind of the accepted, you know, uh, conception that we have of the EU. You know, the EU has 27 member states and those 27 member states have pooled their sovereignty. So they've given up essentially decision making authority uh, to an extent that is really not the case in any other uh, uh, international organization in the world. So we really are looking at Um, a political system at the EU level that has certain state-like features, including independent institutions at the European level with which the member states uh, share power. Um, And so when we're looking at how policies are made, it really looks like politics politics and policymaking in a kind of normal national, right, what we think of as a national political environment. We have a bicameral legislature that, you know, looks very much like what we see in other places where we have a, a, an upper chamber that is composed, you know, of or that represents the, the state interests, right, the member state interests in this case. And then we have a lower chamber, uh, the European Parliament, that's composed of the directly elected representatives of, of the European people. And, um, you know, they, they pass legislation, the member states, you know, and once it passes, then it requires the consent of the European Parliament, this, you know, the only example of a directly elected international parliament. Um, in order to, for, for laws to become laws. And once that's passed, there's really nothing the member states can do to, to, to change that. Um, and so um, the EU institutions uh, have real decision-making power across a very wide range of policy areas, you know, environment, consumer protection, public health, agriculture, transport, including then also really contested things like civil rights, immigration, asylum policy, policy and, and, you know, it's a really wide range of policy areas. And so... Fundamentally, what sets the EU apart as an international organization is that, um, you know, we have a, a setup where democratically elected representatives right, pass legislation across a wide range of policy areas, uh, which then both the member states and then also EU citizens are directly um, subject to. Um, and importantly, EU law is actually superior to national law. So if the two conflict, then national law has to be brought in accordance with, uh, with national law. Which, by the way, is also one reason why the EU has to be bilingual, right? Uh, or multilingual, I should say, right? It, it is very intrusive in that it really affects deeply the uh, lives of regular Europeans. And so EU citizens have to be able to access information in the language of their choice. Um, and, you know, in order to basically participate in EU politics for the sake of democratic accountability and then also basically for the legitimacy of the EU institutions, right? Like it, people need to be able to get information, political information, Right, in a language that they can actually speak. And that's why it's one reason why it's a multilingual entity. That might be my fun fact of the day. EU law trumps national law. Oh, yeah. I that's talked crazy. About that in my, yeah, no, I might have said that literally yesterday when I was teaching this uh, in my EU class. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So speaking of this research, lots of things interwoven, lots of languages, lots, lots of stuff going on. So how did you... How did you go about studying this? What was your methodology? Yeah, so, so as I said, it, it really was this, this exploratory aspect was, was really key to all of this. And, and in a way, it was very different research from, you know, how I usually do it and also how a lot of, you know, how we, how we as political scientists often do it, you know, where we 
often, you know, kind of start with theory and then we have hypotheses and then we test those. And, and in this case, I really didn't have any legs to stand on in, the, in that regard. So I really needed to kind of figure out uh, what is actually going on, right? Like, and, and some basic information was really not even available. And so I ended up uh, relying primarily on about 100 interviews that I did, um, in-depth interviews, both with people um, who are policymakers in the EU institutions, but also with people who um, are language service providers, so translators or interpreters, um, because I also wanted to kind of get their sense, you know, their, their angle uh, uh, on the question. And so those interviews um, are, are really the backbone of the book. Yes, I you know very very little quantitative stuff in this. So usually I, I do much more kind of a mixed method uh, uh, type of research. But in this case, I think I run one statistical analysis in the book, and that's it. Um, and then I did uh, uh, get the help of of one of our former grad students because I didn't have this in my own skill set uh, with a linguistic analysis of of uh, oral proceedings in the e in the European Parliament. So kind of analyzing the the really the language as language. Um, uh, yeah, and and that's basically the. That's basically the set of, of you know, tools that I used, uh, but, but there's this, this famous uh, uh, phrase by uh, Richard Fenno in American politics, actually, who, you know, talked about soaking and poking. And in a way, that's what I did. You know, I did a lot of soaking and poking uh, to, to figure out what's really going on. So your main argument and finding in the book is that multilingualism depoliticizes EU politics in a couple major ways. Do you want to maybe lay the argument out for us and your three main findings? Yeah, sure. I mean, really what it comes down to is that, um, is that uh, when people, there's really two aspects to multilingualism in the EU, right? So yeah. two ways people communicate. One is that people talk to each other in a non-native shared language. And mostly that's English. And we can talk about why it's English. And, you know, it used to be French, but it's no longer... Um, so people talk to each other in a non-native language. The other one is that people rely on translation or interpretation. So, inter you know, translation is uh, usually, you know, focused on written words, uh, while interpreting is focused on oral proceedings. Um, and so the argument that I basically make is, is, is in a way fairly straightforward that, um, that uh, you know, when we think about, uh, let's first maybe start thinking about people talking in uh, non-native languages, they essentially don't have the same toolkit, right? They, they can't express themselves with the same kind of nuance, with the same kind of uh, ease, with the same kind of vocabulary as they would um, in their native languages. And so there's a kind of standardization and simplification of language that comes in um, where, you know, people are actually, it's really focused on getting their point across and, 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 you know, does the other person hear and understand what I am trying to say? And am I understanding what the other person is trying to say? And so, we end up with language that um, is more simple, utilitarian, and more pragmatic um, than in a monolingual uh, environment. Um, and it also is more standardized, right? Uh, people fall back on you know, certain phrases and you know, terms that they know and that they know other people know. Um, and one of the outcomes here is that people, you know, political actors are really not as distinguishable from each other um, as they would be otherwise, right? So people, you know, when they all use the same language in a way, the same type of words and concepts and so on and so forth, right? We, we can, um, you know, they are the, the, the kind of signals that people might use in political language where, you know, if somebody says illegal immigrant, right? Like that tells us something about that person's, right? Kind of thoughts on immigration attitudes, so on and so forth. In the EU, if somebody says illegal immigrant, right, we don't know if that is the case because it might simply be the only term that this non-native speaker knows, right? And so we can't necessarily infer 
that uh, they actually used it with intent. And so, and, and something similar in a way happens then when people rely on translators and interpreters who are really doing their best, you know, and, and these people are amazing at their jobs, right? I mean, I, I've really come to greatly admire them uh, more so than I did before uh, throughout this project. But, you know, they also rely on kind of standardized language, you know, common phrases. Um, sometimes that's actually, there's a legal aspect to this where, you know, if a certain concept has been used before in EU legislation, right, then it ends up getting picked up uh, in the future. So there's a kind of path dependency there. So translators are not really as, as creative in their translations as they perhaps, you know, as we might think, because they're kind of constrained by essentially the fact that there is previous terminology, right? Like where you don't have the, you know, you, you don't have the leeway to just kind of make up something new or something like that. And interpreters have to translate spoken words, right, on the spot, and that's incredibly difficult. And so, you know, they also fall back on these kind of common phrases and so on and so forth, where, you know, the language that comes out is more standardized, right, than the language in a way that goes in. Uh, even though I should say that people also adjust the way that they talk and write in anticipation of the fact that it's going to be translated or interpreted. So there's actually also some standardization already happening there. Um, and yeah, so, you know, fundamentally, this is, you know, why it is depoliticizing, because political differences don't matter as much anymore uh, or are not as easily, to, as easily identified, uh, because people, when they use certain language, we can't necessarily assume that they're doing it with intent. And so, you know, it has all kinds of implications for, you know, you know what resonates uh, with arguments, um, you know, how debates uh, are uh, actually take place, you know, <laughs> not much debate. Um, but, but yeah, that, that's kind of what it comes down to. And why might your discoveries be a bit counterintuitive? Yeah, so, so I, I say that it's counterintuitive, uh, not actually because I think, I think once I explain it, I don't think it's counterintuitive, right? I think that, you know, after I've, you know, I think people can actually relate to the idea that you don't have the ability to express yourself with the same ease in another language, right? Or that a translator kind of takes little shortcuts, right? I think that all of that is intuitive. What's counterintuitive is in a way, if you think about how political scientists think, have thought about multilingualism and its effect on various political outcomes, right? And the, the idea that multilingualism depoliticizes de is, is what's counterintuitive because, you know, often it is really seen that multilingualism and linguistic heterogeneity is a source of conflict and division. And so it is often, you know, plugged into, you know, uh, analyses to basically then show that, you know, uh, uh, that it leads to worse governance outcomes that, you know, and, and, and things like that. And so, you know, because of this usually associated with these social and political divisions, at worst, violent conflict, right? So that, you know, when we think about the role that, that you know, language plays in, in, in international relations sometimes. Um, so that's part of why I, th I think that is a bit counterintuitive to say that multilingualism depoliticizes because I think that would not be how people would initially kind of think of it um, because we often use it kind of as a, as a as essentially as an identity, identity marker, right? And in that sense, then language becomes more politicizing. The other thing is that when you look at, you know, what other people have written about, uh, multilingualism in the EU, they often point to, you know, the fact that there's misunderstandings, political, you know, miscommunications, that there are disruptions and so on and so forth, which again, you would think would kind of, uh, you know, lead to more contestation, right? Uh, and I actually, again, I find the opposite because uh, what actually happens is that, you know, misunderstandings, disruptions, uncertainties, and so on and so forth, people are actually fairly tolerant of them because they know that they are part of an international and multilingual environment. 
And yeah, I have this great quote by somebody in, in the Council of the European Union who says, you know, the worst thing that happens is that somebody says, um, I'm sorry, did I understand you correctly, right? And then you kind of move on, right? Um, and you so, politely nod. Right, and then, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, and if somebody says something that you think, you know, somebody uses the term illegal alien again, right? Like you, you, you don't, you know, start immediately contesting that because you don't know whether or not that person actually means what they're saying in a way. So for leaders, policymakers, and perhaps citizens of the EU, what are the main implications of your findings? Like, should they raise unintentional concerns? So, so I think in a way, right, we can think of the outcome of this, in, in, you know, in a way we can think of this somewhat positively when we actually think about the policymaking process itself, right? It is kind of rationalized, right? Like you don't have the, you know, uh, people using language for kind of political purposes is much more focused on the communication aspect. And so there might actually be something positive about that. Um, I think it's more problematic when we actually do think about the kind of external dimension of this. If it is the case, you know, which I, which I argue that, that EU language is de-ideologized and de-nationalized and, you know, uh, essentially kind of papers over political differences, right? That might not actually be beneficial from the perspective of democratic representation, right? Like you don't, you don't want political issues to be unduly depoliticized when they in fact are, you know, when they are political and they should be politicized. So I think that's one concern. The other one is that, you know, when we're thinking about uh, EU citizens, um, essentially communicating with EU institutions. And then what they're confronted with is this, you know, bland, you know, this bland language in a way, right, which is kind of what it comes down to, then I think that it does not exactly help the link between the EU and its citizens, right? I think that the distance that already, you know, there's this idea that there's a democratic deficit, that EU citizens don't have a real, um, you know, sense of what's actually going on inside the institutions, and so they don't necessarily engage in the political process as they should or as they would otherwise. And so all of that, I think, is not helped by, you know, perceptions of EU language kind of being weird and bland and disconnected from the language that people actually use. And so I think that that, you know, the, for the EU, that means that they got to be careful, right, when they when they do not export that language, when they actually communicate with citizens, right? So it might be fine to say we're going to use this particular EU type of language for the, our inside purposes, and that might actually be a good thing. But when we communicate to the outside, we should really be careful not to, you know, or be even conscious of doing that. But that's the other thing is that, you know, if you've been socialized into this, you might not be aware that, you know, you're using language that is not the language that, you know, people, regular people would be using necessarily. Is English effectively the primary shared language in the EU? Yeah, it is. It didn't used to be. It used to be French, basically as a as a function of enlargement. Um, the you know enlargement, uh, the more member states joining the EU, that has really changed. So it used to be French, and uh, that really even into the nineteen nineties, French was the primarily primary language inside the EU institutions. Um, then you know Sweden, uh, Austria joined the EU uh, in the nineteen nineties, which then kind of like started tilting the balance more towards English. Um, and then when the eastward enlargement happened in 2004, sometimes called the Big Bang enlargement, right? Because uh, essentially in 2004 and 2010, 10 new member states joined from Central and Eastern Europe. And uh, most of the incoming officials, right, and, and politicians, their primary second language was not French, right? It was English. And so that decisively shifted the balance towards English. And now English is absolutely 
uh, dominant inside the institutions. I should say, though, that uh, one thing that's important to keep in mind is that, you know, when people use English as a shared language, a lot of the time, especially in, you know, official meetings, they always have the opportunity to fall back on their native language. And I think that's actually important to keep in mind, right? So I might be, as a non-native speaker, I might be using English, but I have the option to say, oh, I don't know what this particular term, or I want to make clear that I'm not miscommunicating, so I'm going to say this in my mother tongue. And then there's a professional interpreter present who will actually then translate it into English. Um, so I think that that combination of using a shared language and then falling back when you need to on your mother tongue is actually very important for the proper functioning of, of the whole thing. We have a bit of an unsophisticated question with big words, so, <laughs> so put up with me for a minute. But do you think some part of the depolitization story is about big bureaucratic institutions churning out administrative lexicon to try to maximize information dissemination while seeking to avoid offending or maybe deterring criticism and pushback as much as possible to diverse audiences with very little self-interest and incentive structures? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a good question. Uh, in, in this case, I think it actually is a very reasonable question to ask, uh, especially about the EU, because in many ways, EU politics is, in fact, deliberately depoliticized, right? Mm. So we have this political entity, right, um, where, you know, that has essentially been moved forward through, you know, economic integration, through technocratic processes to really advance political goals kind of under the radar, right? And so asking a question about to what extent does this serve you know, a purpose, right, of depoliticization in an international entity where there's a lot of potential for, for you know, for, for contestation. I think, I think that's a good question to ask. But when it comes to the, the core of my argument, right, I don't think that there's an intentionality here, right, because uh, we really are talking about it simply being the, re you know, depoliticization is essentially just the result of, um, you know, people using a non-native language, right? Or people using interpretation. And this is not somehow set up in such a way that it depoliticizes. I think it is just kind of the nature of the beast um, that that is the outcome. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, and and so I, I, I do make it, you know, I do make a, a, a distinction between or I try to tease out, right, like in what ways EU politics might be considered to be kind of deliberately depoliticizing. But then I think that uh, when it comes to the, the kind of core of my argument here about how the use of non-native languages and the reliance on language services, I think that that is not intentional. It might not be necessarily unwelcome, but <laughs> that's not the same as unintentional. So what are some areas of improvement of the EU's language regime do you suggest? Like... What can we do to fix this? Yeah, well, that's yeah. actually the important thing. And, and one thing that's really interesting is that a lot of the research that has been done on this in other fields mm -hmm. um, tended to focus, you know, and, and in some instances, quite frankly, seem to be looking for dysfunction where there, necessarily, where there wasn't necessarily dysfunction. And so um, one of the things that I, I find really interesting when I look at some of the research, and, and really, you know, I'm not, I'm not kind of poo-pooing the research here. I think that it's high-quality research, but... Um, you know, in some other fields, there seems to be a tendency to basically be like, oh, you know, the, the starting point is kind of like, how do we fix this? Um, and from my perspective, I, I first wanted to establish, you know, whether or not from the perspective of the people participating in it, does it actually need to be fixed? And one of the things that I found is that, you know, the people that I talked to overwhelmingly think that it actually works, um, you know, and that, that, you know, of course, it's not flawless. And uh, of course, there are 
problems, um, and, and you know, I'll come to your actual question in a moment about kind of, you know, where there is room for improvement. But um, one of the things that I try to avoid, which I think some of the previous research is a little bit guilty of, is to equate any kind of, you know, any problem, right, with kind of systemic dysfunction. And that I don't think is the case. I think fundamentally this works, and frankly, I think it works surprisingly well, given you know, I mean, when we think about, right, we were talking about this, this incredibly complex political system that operates in 24 official languages, right? The thousands you, you know, of opportunities. Right, I mean, just think about, like, the, 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 the right, the, the opportunities for problems and yeah. then when they occur, right? I, I think that they happen is basically inherent to the system and inevitable, right? And so we should not take every problem to be indicative of, you know, something is fundamentally wrong that needs to be fixed. Um, the other thing that I try to be very conscious of... Um, when I think about room for improvement, is that um, you know EU multilingualism essentially happens under what I call a veil of language equality, right? So everybody understands. There's nobody under any kind. Of, there's no pretense, right, within the institutions um, or amongst people who know about the EU that lang- that English is totally dominant, right? Um, but at the same time, right, like we have this principle that all languages are equal. And so a lot of people actually jump on that and, and have basically argued that this is kind of like some inherent tension that needs to be addressed and so on and so forth. And what I actually think was actually going on is that the formal equality of the languages allows everybody to basically say, no, 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 our languages are equal to all the other languages. Don't worry, you know, we're not elevating one language over the other, which of course would be seen as problematic in this kind of political entity. And then everybody knows that de facto, you sometimes, and a lot of the time, in fact, need to rely on a shared language that everybody can reasonably communicate in. And that just is English, right? And that is not prescribed from above or anything like that. It's like, that's just what it is. Um, and so, uh, you know, as long as nobody makes the, the de facto, the unevenness in language use kind of too obvious, right? Or make it formal, right? Like if anybody said, oh, let's just make English de facto the main working language in the EU institutions, right? That's when everybody would start losing it, right? Because then they would be like, well, you can't do that. You can't elevate one language over the other. As long as everybody says our languages are equal and then accepts de facto that a lot of the time there's going to be reliance on one language that most people happen to know pretty well, then uh, uh, things are pretty fine. So, So when I think about improvements, my starting point is that a lot of the things we might point to, it can't be anything that politicizes something that nobody wants to politicize, right? Which is to, to basically say, um, you know, let's not think about whether or not there should be a hierarchy amongst the languages or something like that, because that's a non-starter and everybody's going to get all worked up over it and it's going to essentially touch on all of these identity questions that people don't want to half enter the equation. Um, And so instead, you know, I think that there's definitely things that can be, I think the main concern that I would have is that uh, the member states who basically have to pay for all of this, right, that they take something good that they have for granted um, and that they basically see that this is working. And so they think, oh, you know, we can keep cutting the budget, you know, we can kind of reduce staffing uh, and it's just going to continue working. And I think that that is the part where I would say this is not something to be taken for granted, right? It works, uh, but it only continues to work if it is, there is sufficient investment in this. Um, and so fundamentally, all of the problems that I think that could be 
fixed or things that could be improved are things you could throw money at it and that would fix it, right? So increase the budget or at least don't cut it so significantly, right? That the EU has to increasingly rely on freelancers, for example, because that's cheaper, mm -hmm. right? Which, but then, then raises questions about the quality. Um, so, you know, all of this, I think, is about focusing on improving what's already working pretty well without, you know, lifting the veil of language equality. That's kind of what it comes down to, I think, when we think about improvements. It's stunning how, like, the little interworkings that you've laid out for us seem to rely on, in many ways, just politeness and mutual understanding. Yeah, I think so, but I don't think it's a. It's, I, I, I mean, this is actually interesting. There, there are, you know, there's a bit of a debate amongst people who study the EU whether or not there's a culture of consensus. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there are some people who basically say that there's nothing to this. I tend to think that there is actually something to the argument. But I, I really don't think that it is, you know, people making a conscious choice to be polite. I think it's people operating in a political environment where they understand that some of the dynamics simply are going to be different than in a monolingual environment. And so it's not that people are being purposely polite to each other. It's just a matter of, do we want to have a flare up every time that somebody uses a term without intent, right? And then we're going to start arguing and then we're never going to get anything done, right? So let's just focus on you get your point across. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. If I have some kind of reason to think that there's a misunderstanding, I'm going to ask for clarification. And, you know, and, and sure, I think that there is an element of empathy there, right? Like that people understand where the other one is coming from and they see themselves maybe in a similar situation in a different context or something like that. But I don't think some kind of conscious decision, oh, we're going to all be nice to each other. I think that it's necessary for it to work and people inside want it to work, right? I mean, people don't want to waste their time. They want to get things done. Taking a bit of a pivot here, we're going to take the opportunity, since you're on the podcast and basically ask you, we hope it's okay, if we ask you what your take is on how the EU has responded to the attacks in Ukraine. Yeah, so, so one thing that's really tricky here is that uh, the EU, you know, all of the things that I said about deep integration, in a way, the big exception to all of this is foreign and security policy, mm -hmm. uh, where the EU as such does not actually have um, really competence. Um, it is fundamentally still in the hands of the member states, right? And so what the EU, as the EU can do, is, is very, very limited because fundamentally when it comes to these kinds of issues, right, what, what Scholz is doing in Germany, what Macron is doing in Paris, right, like that is actually where, in a way, most of the action is. Now, that could very well change in part as a result of this kind of crisis, right? So I think that the uh, EU has uh, is experiencing its vulnerabilities right now. Um, and uh, I think that it's feeling those particularly acutely because with Joe Biden in the White House, right? I, nobody is concerned about America's commitment to NATO or to Europe or something like that. But between 2016 and 2020, the Europeans received a very strong message that uh, they can't necessarily take that for granted, that if a different person is in the White House, then suddenly, you know, their own defense is not something where they can continue in a way to free ride on, you know, American security. And so um, I think the combination of those two things have really the potential to change um, the EU's security considerations, and that might actually then drive um, forward something that has been kind of elusive for the EU for many decades, right? The actual development of a you know, real security policy, a real security framework at the European level. And the decision by Germany to dramatically increase its defense budget um, is an indication that that is 
perhaps where we're, we're moving, right? This is not going to happen overnight. This is going to be an incredibly protect, protracted, very contested process. But, um, you know, Germany has essentially committed to spending more on defense than it ever has before. It has, uh, you know, really broken with every tradition in its foreign policy um, over the last two weeks. You know, so if somebody had asked me, you know, three weeks ago, might that you know even at that point when you know there wasn't an invasion yet but you know, most of us thought there wouldn't be an invasion right um i would have said that it's inconceivable that germany would change its budget you know its, its defense budget the way that it did and now it, that that's what happened so i think that you know we don't know what the long-term consequences are going to be but i think that they are really quite uh they, they could be quite profound this could be a moment right that we look back at and we say oh yeah that is when there was a real pivot what do you think about Ukraine's request to be admitted to the EU? Yeah, that is an interesting one. I'm glad you asked that question because this is one of those things where if you don't know anything about the EU, you might think that this is just a matter of, you know, the EU member states getting together and, you know, the Scholz and Macron of the world kind of raising their hand and saying, and now Ukraine is part of the EU. And it's really, really different. It's not that, that simple. It's <laughs> not at all that simple. So there are very strict criteria for EU membership. And there's a set of criteria um, that is kind of more general that revolve around, you know, you have to be a liberal democracy and you have to be have a functioning market economy that is able to, you know, as is EU speak, to, to withstand the competitive pressures of being part of the single market, right, of being part of the economic union, essentially. Um, and then there is a second set of criteria that's, you know, basically what they prescribe is that a prospective member state, so somebody who wants to join the union, a state that wants to join the union, has to implement all existing EU law before becoming a member. We're talking about, you know, 100 plus thousand pages of laws and regulations. And so the idea that uh, Ukraine could suddenly, you know, by the, with the snap of a finger become an EU member is, is really far-fetched. Now, I don't know what's going to happen, right? So things are really dramatic right now. Things are happening such that, you know, I, I, I'm very reluctant to predict the future. But if we think about what the actual, the regular process is of a country becoming a member of the EU, this is something that would take Ukraine, you know, a decade at least before they actually get to that point. The other thing is that's important to keep in mind is that the EU has a common defense clause. So if Ukraine became a member of the EU, suddenly all of the EU member states would be required to go to war with Russia. Um, and that's not going to happen. So, um, you know, I think the membership, I think those are important signals, right? Um, and is a, a way of trying to strengthen the hand of the Ukrainian government by, by signaling, yes, you know, we want you in at some point, but this is not something in any way that is imminent. I was going to say, is, is there, like, you, you said it wasn't a, you know, we all raise our hand, you mm -hmm. know, they're in, but... While you were talking, I was like, oh, but there's got to be like some kind of like we want to defend Ukraine. But the the idea that they all have to go to war. They, yeah, that seems like it's just not. Good. Well, I mean, that that's, you know, like it's one of those things. It has never like that common defense clause. Right. Has yeah. never been used. Right. So we don't have precedent for what would happen. Right. In, in this particular instance. Right. I mean, the reality is that if we take this quite literally. Right. Yeah. If Ukraine were a member of the EU, the other member states would be required to come to its defense. And, uh, you know, nobody wants to go to war with Russia. What do you see as the short versus long-term consequences of all the drama <laughs> going on right now in the EU? 
I mean, short term, I think it's just that we're going to be in a period of really insane uncertainty for quite a while. So, you know, in, in, in that sense, you know, in the short term, there's in a way more reason for pessimism. Uh, in the long term, the thing that I'm wondering about is, I mean, Putin has achieved something that, you know, Europeans usually dream of, which is to basically unite everyone, right? And that is, you know, that has happened inside the EU, right? There's a very little dissent uh, on kind of what the official position is that the West, including the EU, is taking towards Russia. And so, um, you know, the Western, the, the response of the West, including the EU, has been uh, uh, quite forceful and, you know, short of actually going to war, obviously, uh, but has been quite forceful. Um, it has been quite unified. Um, and again, when we're thinking about some of those things that really have been elusive from the perspective of the EU, like developing a real capacity, a security capacity, and so on and so forth, um, this might very well be the starting point. Um, so who knows? Of course, the kind of unity that we see now is probably short-lived, so we're going to start seeing more divisions over time. Um, but, uh, but, but you know, Putin tried to take advantage of what he thought would be divisions between both within Europe, but also, you know, generally speaking, maybe between the US and, and, and the EU. And uh, he has certainly not achieved that, right? Quite the opposite. It's so fascinating. For some reason, for the, in the past few days, a lot of my classes have been bringing up, um, you know, clips from news reportings throughout like 2019 and 2020. And there, there was all this, you know, everyone was getting accused of Russian collusion left and right. Yeah. And we knew something was coming, but we didn't quite know what it was. It's so funny to look back. None of us quite knew. Actually, the Baltics did. <laughs> you know, this is one of those things that I think is really, you know, the countries that are directly in that, you know, what Putin sees as his sphere of influence, that, right? Yeah. They've been saying this, and, uh, you know, I think we can all agree that Latvia has been right, you know, <laughs> or Estonia has been right all along. We'll give them that. They've been yeah. right all along. Well, we've covered a lot of bases today, mm -hmm. from uneven multilingualism, touching on Russia, politics in the EU, but what haven't we talked about that we should? Did we miss anything? Actually, the thing that I think is, you know, we're going to come back to multilingualism through this, but um, the thing that we haven't talked about that I think is really fascinating about EU multilingualism is that there is a legal dimension to this, and I kind of briefly hinted at that. Um, the legal part of it fundamentally revolves around the what's called the equal authenticity of the language versions of EU law, meaning that all language versions, all 24 language versions of EU law are equally legally valid. So there isn't a, you know, an original where we might, might say, oh, this was all negotiated uh, in English and then put on paper in English. And so the English is the original and the other ones are the translations. And so if need be, a court when adjudicating, right, EU law should look at the English version to determine what the actual intent was, which would be really fundamentally problematic in a legal order where uh, EU law, as we discussed, is actually supreme, and it uh, confers rights on EU citizens that they can claim in both national and European courts. So in order for this to work, um, right, regular people have to be able to trust that if I look up, you know, a particular rule or regulation or whatever in German, as the German citizens say, that what it says there is in fact legally valid and is not subject to somebody saying, oh, the English version says something slightly different and that now applies to you. Then I would certainly be subject to a law that is written in language that I don't necessarily speak, right? And that would be very problematic. 
So all the language versions have to be equally authentic, which has a number of interesting consequences. So one of them is that there's this kind of weird sleight of hand where when it, you know EU law could have been negotiated in entirely in English and you know drafted in English and so on and so forth, the moment that it gets translated into the other languages, the original ceases to exist and the translations no longer are translations. They are all considered to be as if, right, it had been uh, uh, negotiated in any of the other languages. So that's one interesting thing. The other thing that is interesting is that in order for, you know, law has to have a, a, a common effect across the entire EU. So you can't have a situation where the German version of the law is interpreted differently by a German court than the you know Spanish version of that law in by a Spanish court, which then actually means that there are people, specialized translators in the EU, who not only are trained translators, they are also trained lawyers, whose job it is not only to translate the law so that they say the same thing, but so that it has the same implications and consequences when interpreted by a national court. And so in some situations that might mean actually using a translation that is not obvious. I can give you an example here. So it could be, uh, in, you know, the English version of the law refers to public service. The French version, if it said service public, which is the literal translation, it would be really problematic because service public apparently means something very different in the French uh, context, such that it is much more encompassing than what we think of as public service. And so when public service is translated into French, the translator has to make sure that it is translated in such a way that it is not misperceived as being service public, because then the French law, the French court would interpret it in a totally different way. And so they have to find ways, and sometimes that actually means using different terms than you might think, um, such that it actually has the same effect in all of the member states. And these people, I mean, it's a crazy profession. The craziest thing in a way about it is that I have studied, you know, at that point when I started working on this, I studied BU for like 15 years. And, you know, I'm somebody who doesn't study it kind of from, you know, far above. Like I go into the institutions and I talk to people and, you know, I'm really, you know, I, I know about the legislative process and every detail. I have no idea that these people exist, right? The moment that somebody pointed out that they exist, I said, yeah, of course they have to exist, right? Mm -hmm. Like you couldn't have this work if they didn't exist. But I didn't know that they existed. And they're really crucial, right? And actually at this point, what's amazing is they, they sit in meetings. So when there's a negotiation happening, they're not waiting for the final outcome. And then they translate that. Because they, they, they realized over time that one of the problems can be that once the negotiations are over, and they put, like, say, an ambiguous term into the draft legislation, then it can be too late to actually change it. And so what they do is they sit in the meetings and they raise their hand. If somebody says, uh, a nice example that I heard about this was um, that, that the term citizen in Latvian is potentially problematic because there are actually people in Latvia who are not Latvian citizens who are part of the Russian-speaking minority, but they're not citizens. Um, like, you know, in the same way that other Latvians are citizens of Latvia. And so if you use the term citizens, then it would be ambiguous when translated into Latvian. And so then the question becomes, right, how do you translate that? And so the people in the, the lawyer linguists in the room will actually then raise their hand and they will say, oh, wait a minute, right? That is a problematic term. It will be very difficult to translate. So let's figure out how to actually put it into the draft so that it translates properly into all of the other languages. So I think that that part of 
multilingualism is really, really fascinating. And also comes back to, you know, when we're talking about a standardization of language, this is one of the reasons why you end up with that standardization, right? Because people, when in doubt, will refer back to previous documents, right? Pre you know, essentially looking at precedent, right? To say, rather than say citizens here, what should we say? Should we say national, right? Should we say whatever we should say? And then they look back at previous you know, essentially previous documents, and then they use that language, which then means that over time, language becomes more and more standardized. So that's the part I've been really fascinated by throughout doing this project and also writing it. And so I'm glad that you let me talk about that at the end. No, that's so interesting. The acrobats of it all, the language just tricks that you have to do. They're very mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. It's very fun to think about. As we wrap up, I, I think I have a little bit of a fun question for you. Okay. Do you have any phrases, maybe turns of speech that you know, but are just very hard to translate into maybe professional English or get a little bit funny when you try to translate them? Yeah, so, so uh, I have a whole chapter on, on what I call EU English. Um, so, you know, the kind of particular type of English that is used inside the EU, EU institutions. You know, some of it is just, you know, just jargon, right? Like that, you know, professional jargon that has developed in one particular setting. But um, they also then there are particular specialized words that, you know, regular people would not know what they mean, but they are totally important in the EU context. Um, you know, something like subsidiarity, which is the principle that the EU should basically only take action when the objective to be achieved can in fact best be achieved by EU action and not by being left to the member states, right? So subsidiarity, right? Like I know what that means, you wouldn't know what that means. But then you have a real potential for, for confusion, even like for, say, native speakers, because some terms end up being especially adapted from, from French, right, which used to be the primary language. And so one nice example of this is that people use the term delay to mean deadline, which comes from the French delay, which means deadline. Apparently, my French is not that good. And so you will see, right, people referring to delay when they mean deadline, and of course, that makes no sense to a you know native English speaker or somebody who speaks English and who doesn't take that into account. And so, um, so th th there's definitely room for confusion there. That that you know those kinds of terms have a have a different meaning. Some of it is also you know certain constructions. So when people, you know, people, uh, uh, one thing that you hear like, and this comes back to what I was you know how I was starting out. You know, people kind of talk funny. So one of the things that you might notice when you talk to people inside EU institutions is that they wouldn't say. Mr. Miller's report, but they will say the report of Mr. Miller, which of course is, you know, awkward, yeah. but, you know, it's totally normal inside the EU institutions. And one of the interesting things is that people, you know, and this is also kind of indicative of, of it being an, an accepted internal language in a way, is that people disregard that, right? Mm -hmm. And even native English speakers might actually pick up some of those elements, right? Because of, you know, they might be native speakers, but they understand, of course, that in order to make themselves be understood in this particular context, they have to adjust the way that they talk. And so even native English speakers end up sounding a little bit funny. That's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, I've studied enough French to know that you should never use French as a standard language for anything because they call potatoes earth apples. Like that's a horrible <laughs> language, maybe, <laughs> to just use as a universal yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, but the French influence is really all over yeah, the place, it is. right? Like you, 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 you definitely see that, and 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 there are so also certain terms where the people actually use the they actually use the French. So when they refer, for example, to the the, the staff of one of the commissioners, one of the members of the European Commission, right? Um, so the personal staff, people call it the cabinet, right? The cabinet, but the cabinet, and then you know the chief of staff is the chef de cabinet, and people say that in English. 
right? They will talk about, you know, in English and then they will say, oh yeah, yeah and that is Ursula von der Leyen's chef de cabinet. Yeah, so you also end up, of course, with a lot of language mixing, which is, is pretty fun as well. Well, one last question. It's getting a little bit warmer outside. Do you have anything you're looking forward to doing in Madison this spring? Um, well, I mean, one thing that I'm looking forward to is uh, that it's going to be spring. And so some of the things that we can, you know, we can actually do things and do things with people more easily than we have. Um, you know, I'm one of the people who uh, are not jumping at the opportunity to take off my mask quite yet. Um, so I think that I'm, I'm not quite comfortable with that. And so the fact that the weather is going to be nicer is going to allow me to socialize in a way that, that I haven't uh, over the winter. And so that is the, the main thing that I'm looking forward to. The other thing that I'm looking forward to is is that, you know, things are slowly changing. And so I actually have some travel planned, which is mm-hmm. feels insane. So, so both uh, professional and, and personal travel, and, and that is something that I'm both a little apprehensive about. And then, of course, every time, like, you know, especially when I talk to my son about it, I always, ask, you know, there's always the caveat, right? Like, things can change, right? Like, this is the plan right now, but we don't, you know. So, so, um, so but, but I'm actually, you know, reasonably optimistic that uh, some of that is going to happen. So those are the main things that I that I think I'm looking forward to, other than the season of Forward Madison FC getting underway in April. And so going back to soccer games is is the other main thing that I'm looking forward to. Thank you so much for talking to us today. This has been a very interesting conversation. I love language. I love communications. This has been very informative and very fun. Yep. It's been a fun project for me as well. So, and one thing that's been fun about it is that, you know, not only political scientists like to hear about it, like regular people, they're like, oh yeah, that sounds actually pretty interesting. So uh, it's been kind of nice. Thank you so much. And we can't wait to have you on the podcast again. Great. Thank you so much. For more information, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers and Claire Salmi and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.